This episode is sponsored by 107 Media Network. 107 Media specializes in helping sustainable CPG brands with paid media and influencer marketing. If you're interested in the services, uh, do check out the details in the description box below. Uh, plus, if you like this episode, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on any platform you're listening on. Uh, this is Sumit Patil, and let's tune in to today's episode with Adam Bent. All right, hello and welcome to yet another episode of Startup 107. My name is Sumit Patil and in today's episode, I'm joined by Adam Bent. Uh, Adam is the co-founder and CEO of a brand called Scout Canning. Uh, Scout Canning is a deliciously crafted seafood company based in Canada. Uh, Adam, first of all, it's an honor to have you on the podcast and thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. Uh, so Adam, before we go into your story of building Scout Canning, Uh, would love to know a bit more about you and your background as well. Sure. Well, it's been a long road to arrive at building a modern seafood cannery. Although canned seafood's been around for over 120 years, um, it's gone through a couple of iterations as uh, the industry's changed since it was first invented to how we how we work with tin fish today. Um, but growing up in Canada, I was you know often outdoors and became really connected to the environment and climate action at a pretty young age. um and and climate action and and climate change were were kind of clo- close to my my heart and something that I was paying attention to from a pretty young age and i didn't necessarily put my environmentalism into practice until later on in my my 20s but um you know i was always entrepreneurial as well and um always loved food and and got a keen interest in food and then started to really see the connection between food and climate change and farming and food systems and also how influential things like chefs and restaurants can be on how consumer shop at home for food or how they cook um at home for food and or dietary preferences so my career began kind of in the travel industry and i was able to travel the world and some pretty cool places and and got kind of thrown into a startup right outside of high school and that's where i got my teeth cut on entrepreneurship working with the three founders and scaling a travel brand um that turned into a pretty large company of 150 people and a kind of a portfolio of several different travel brands so i didn't go to college university because i decided to get working with these founders right out of high school against the wishes of many of my family members and my parents but i think it was the right move from there and from there I just kind of like took off with entrepreneurship i i really got a you know interested in business and and company building and and really you know the the experience that you get from growing from a small team of four or five to you know a a portfolio of of brands in the travel space i learned so much and then i ended up working um in in kind of tech and starting to move away from the travel industry into tech and i had the opportunity to launch a company called urban spoon okay. in the north american marketplace and that's where i started to work with a lot of chefs and restaurant groups but with the lens of technology mm-hmm. and um you know i that's where i started to see how influential the restaurant and kind of hospitality industry was on influencing how diners shopped and how they cooked at home and the things they're putting into their bodies and that really inspired me to kind of continue my career kind of at the intersection of of food brands climate change um and have worked on a variety of projects over the years at that intersection and and then finally landed on on scout so there's a lot of stuff that happened in between there but that's kind of the genesis of my interest kind of leading into how i've i've uh, how i've how i've worked over the years well that is great adam but i think you mentioned you started your getting involved into startup during your high school days uh, mm. but if i had to ask you who was adam apart from that right in high school or his college days who was adam yeah. apart from that 
I was a theater kid. So I, uh, I went to an arts high school and, you know, I, I was really wanting to become an actor at the time, uh, you know, creative. I was loud. I was a bit obnoxious, mm-hmm. probably lacked self-awareness. So you either liked me or you didn't like me. Um, but I was very friendly and outgoing and I spent a lot of time just being social. So, um, I think I, I grew up as a bit of a, a bit of a nerd Mm -hmm. and then I kind of maybe got a little cool in high school in grade 11. And then it became very important to me to like be social and to be going to parties and to, you know, always be meeting new people. And that, that became kind of some of the, I guess the skills that turned into sales and, Mm -hmm. and how to work with other people. Um, but that arts high school was, was where I, you know, really focused on acting and theater and, and just learn how to like work with other people and, and started to grow up a little bit towards the end. Um, but big social guy and loved, uh, yeah, just loved being out and, and meeting new people. Uh, I've heard somewhere that, uh, there is a lot more things common in entrepreneurs and, and artists, right? Yeah. And I think, I think that entrepreneurship is creative, even though it's business, you are creating something entirely new from scratch. Mm -hmm. And it's not just analytical. It's not just spreadsheets and numbers and mathematical equations and unit economics. I mean, there's, there's all of that, but, you know, to have an idea, to be inspired, to build a team, to create vision, um, to be iterating and experimenting, like all of that is actually quite creative. Um, so I think that, yeah, entrepreneurs and creatives probably have a lot in common. And I think some of the best entrepreneurs are the ones who actually lean more towards creativity and maybe less so on the business side. And that's, that's where I would fall in. Absolutely. Plus I think you do have the look of actor as well. So if you would have chosen <laughs> and acting as a career, you would have been successful. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. But uh, I think you mentioned about starting your first business, right? When you were very young. Uh, what mm-hmm. were some of the learnings which you had from that first business, right? Uh, so would love if you can share some of those. Yeah, I think by by joining the co-founders right out of high school, in high school, um, you know, I was so young and I guess naive as well, not really knowing, you know, I didn't know what a cap table was. I knew nothing about fundraising. You know, I didn't even probably know what a profit and loss statement was. I mean, there's just so much that I didn't know. Um, and I think that naivety gives you a little bit of like, you're kind of fearless, right? It gives you the confidence. You can kind of just be happy to learn as you go and, and not know what you don't know, um, which kind of gives you some blind optimism maybe. And I think while I was there for almost about six years, I I was kind of forced to grow up really fast, but I was still a kid that wanted to party. So I had adult responsibilities, but I was not developed um, to actually like, you know, have my shit together in my personal life as an adult. So that was an interesting kind of conflict where I had, you know, more of a career that was launched when I was literally 18, 19. Um, and with that naive, naivety, I think, um, had I, had I been able to have a fortune or a crystal ball and kind of like looked ahead, I think I would have done a lot of things differently, mm-hmm. but I think it gave me the skills of being a generalist. I learned how to be a generalist and being thrown in across multiple units of the business, sales, operations, strategy, planning, hiring, um, you know, project management, um, the list goes on and, and that generalist mentality and kind of always flipping roles mm-hmm. and then being part of a high growth team as a one of the first employees and then to a very large company after that, the kind of compound interest or responsibility was, was something that I just kind of adapted to. So I learned how to be in a high stress, high growth environment, pretty much out of the gate from high school mm-hmm. and something that I wouldn't have been able to have learned going to university or college. And that had equipped me for even the things that I still deal with today is to deal with that 
high level of stress, growth, and pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was I was lucky to have made that choice at a young age, and I don't regret it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wish that I had negotiated for some equity. <laughs> you know, I wish I even knew what equity negotiation was. Okay, uh, okay. I, was, I was building this company with the founders, but also for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had my skills and my capabilities that they were able to leverage and they were older and knew a lot more about business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that also, I guess, looking back on it taught me that I really wanted to be in that leadership position and I wanted to be the creator and the one leading and, mm-hmm. you know, also looking after my, my team members, regardless of their experience level or age in any of the companies that built sense, mm-hmm. um, making sure that there's kind of like fair compensation and, mm-hmm. and acknowledgement to their contribution. At a young age, you were thrown into a lot of responsibilities, right? Um, so even though you didn't got equity, but the amount of knowledge you would have gotten, right? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was immense. Totally. Yeah. I learned, I learned so much and it. And it, uh, again, just wouldn't have been something that I could have learned in school. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would have been the best student in university or college. I always did really well in classes in high school that I enjoyed like acting for sure. Yeah. Like parts of English, other creative classes and stuff, but like, you know, I had 52 absences from grade 12 English and basically okay. dropped out of math by grade 11 and didn't take <laughs> science courses. So everything was like, social sciences, languages, and creative stuff. And mm-hmm. um, at that point, high school became, I didn't really see it as a necessary stepping stone for me. It was just something that I had to do, but it wasn't something that I was freaking out that I had to be a high performer in, in order to achieve some career success later on. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for sharing that. Um, but, you know, I, you started so many different companies before starting uh, Scout Canning. Uh, but why seafood specifically, right? What motivated you, what inspired you to start a seafood company? Well, going back to my love of food, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's there's so many amazing consumer brands that are working with regenerative agriculture sources or upcycled materials, really interesting functional ingredients to improve health and wellness from all over the world, you know, even boring from, you know, uh, different cultures and like old, old ways of eating and, and, and medicines. Um, and all of that is, is fascinating to me and always will be. Mm-hmm. And I've spent time across all types of food systems and producers, nut nurseries, fisheries, livestock farms, you know, berry farms, you name it. And I was able to just experience a career, but through food Mm -hmm. and in North America in particular, just saw a really big disconnect between consumers and their understanding of our oceans as a food system and their understanding of our oceans as the largest protection that we have against climate change. And look, people love to swim, surf, paddle, hang out at the beach. You know, they, they love water um, and they just don't really see it as a food producing system. I mean, and how could they? Nobody's living underwater their whole life. They don't really understand this environment. And yet water covers 70% of the planet between our oceans and waterways. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that we don't know. And there's a lot that consumers don't know. And it's this just kind of like a foreign ecosystem, but it's the largest regenerative food system that we have on earth. It's Mm -hmm. zero input. There are hundreds of species that we can be consuming. There's a lot of things that we can be growing and harvesting from the ocean without anywhere near the same amount of labor, water use, fertilization, pesticides, Mm -hmm. seeds, labor, all, all of that rolls up to the, the motivation that I had to really want to create a brand in seafood that connected consumers back to, to the ocean, but mm-hmm. ocean health, climate change and its role there. So through good food, right. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's an interesting opportunity because everybody eats, mm-hmm. everybody loves 
typically to eat. Um, and when you get to connect people through food back to these big ideas or, or the big challenges that are facing our times right now, that's a really cool opportunity. So mm-hmm. rather than, you know, developing a brand with land-based foods, I, I just wanted to commit to creating a responsible brand in seafood that could get particularly North American consumers interested in broadening what they're consuming from our oceans Mm -hmm. and to increase biodiversity and seafood consumption. Um, And the brands currently that serve the North American market tend to be pretty destructive. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not necessarily mindful of the fisheries that they're sourcing from or the labor practices within their supply chains that have a lot of exploitation of of children and, um, and debt bondage and like forced labor. So there's just a lot of really horrible things that happen in global seafood because as a, as a, as an industry, it's unregulated. Our oceans don't have one international governing body that can enforce and regulate it's done country by country, but when you're out to sea, everything is, is, you know, it's, it's pirates <laughs> at that point. So that, that, uh, inability to regulate has opened up so much abuse, both environmentally and the human welfare side. And these are all the themes that, you know, scout is against we're a challenger mm-hmm. brand against those, those issues and those problems. I want to talk about them and try to shift consumer behavior to look at seafood and how people are eating it more responsibly and, and kind of guiding them along the way. Absolutely. I think it, it's safe to say that it's not just a seafood company, but it's a seafood company with a great mission, right? And uh, I think uh, what you guys are doing is great. Um, and yeah. not just being sustainable, right? But being regenerative. But I think that regenerativeness as well is pretty important uh, when we uh, will be you know, uh, moving forward in the next couple of years. Absolutely. I mean, if we can we can shift some of the behaviors and have American consumers eat a broader amount of seafood. Mm-hmm. It gives the opportunity for certain species to be able to replenish year over year so that their stock levels and the health of that fishery comes back. But because we have the same kind of monoculture palette of chicken, mm-hmm. beef, and pork, equivalent of tuna, salmon, and shrimp when it comes mm-hmm. to ocean source foods or, or, or aquaculture, that, that kind of hyperfixation on the same protein for the palate mm-hmm. creates all these conditions for overfishing and abuse in the supply chain. So rather than eating the 30, 40, 50, hundred types of fish that we can be consuming, we eat mm-hmm. the same. Thing. Um, and that's where all these problems kind of come into play. So hopefully over mm-hmm. the next couple of years, we bring that regenerative frame of mind to how we eat seafood and, you know, the average consumer starts mm-hmm. to broaden what they're, what they're eating from, from, from seafood. That's, that's fantastic, Adam. But honestly, I haven't uh, seen a lot of seafood specific brands in us, right? Please. No, there are, there are a lot. They're just, a lot of them are, are big and they're quite corporate mm-hmm. and the seafood industry is, is mostly high volume, low margin commodity. So they want to harvest as much as they can from the ocean, Mm -hmm. sell high volumes at low margins. And they're not as proficient or they're not as developed as a lot of brands that are using ingredients from from the land Mm -hmm. um, where they're bringing value to the product. They're creating brand equity around it. They're, you know, telling stories behind the product and how it was harvested and who it was from. So seafood is one of the most globally traded items behind, you know, oil and music. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a, it's a global commodity and it's moved all over the world. 
and it's kind of stuck in commodities. So there are there are brands in seafood like Starkiss, Chicken of the Sea, Bumblebee, Gorton's Highliner, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of them are very disconnected from ocean health and climate action. They don't really work on trying to connect consumers back to these issues. Yet their businesses profit immensely from mm-hmm. our regenerative ocean ecosystem. They're harvesting free food from the oceans that the Earth produces for us. Mm-hmm. You know. They're harvesting it, they're processing it, they're slapping a brand on it and they're selling it. And a lot of that is from destructive supply chains. Um, and I think that those brands would prefer that the consumer doesn't really know what's going on behind behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of brand love in the space because people shop the category mostly by price, not necessarily because they love a tuna can from any one number of brands, mm-hmm. but it's because it's the cheapest option available to them. And that's typically how they shopped it. Now, a lot of that's changed. Um, and now consumers are looking, you know, at seafood brands with more scrutiny. They're looking for more responsible brands. They're looking for higher quality products. It's just not the way that the seafood consumer industry had developed over the last 50 years. It became mm-hmm. very commoditized, but now we're having a bounce back to that. Just like we've seen in almost every other product category, consumers mm-hmm. want to know, is this better for me? Is this better for the planet? who's making it, how is it being harvested, and all of the other questions that come along with responsible consumption. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Adam. But uh, over the couple of years, I'm pretty sure you might have raised a lot of funds, right, for multiple businesses which you ran. Uh, if you have to give any advice to someone who haven't raised money till now, right, um, in terms of how to approach it, is networking the only thing which would allow you to do so or any other strategies to in that journey? Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole old statement, like always be networking is, is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of energy to always be networking. It's a lot of output, especially to do it authentically, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to hear it from somebody once or twice a year that just wants something from you. That's yeah. not a way to create an authentic relationship. So it's, it takes a lot of output and, and to some level, like organization and time management to be genuine in developing new relationships, mm-hmm. whether that's through going to webinars online or like real life events or interacting on a LinkedIn post, you know, somebody has a book club and they've shared some excerpts of that. And, you know, if you read that book, you should jump in and make some comments. Like there's, there's some easy high, high leverage kind of things to do. And some that, that takes more time. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately investors invest in people and you could have an amazing business model. You could have done it a couple of times before, but, you know, you can have a really great business plan and, and great unit economics. But at the end of the day, it really also comes down to the entrepreneur. Um, so that human element and being yourself, being genuine is really important. Um, and that's something that I've, you know, been able to, to kind of leverage. I, I lead with a lot of empathy and I really genuinely like to get to know people. Um, and, I, and I bring that through fundraising. So there's no, there's no one kind of size fits all trick. Um, I think that you need to make fundraising a part of your kind of everyday uh, workflow. And it's not just when you need to raise capital. It's also about maintaining these relationships and interacting while you don't need capital. Because when when you do need capital, the light switch goes off and you can't just start to suddenly try to create all these authentic relationships. So that process of continuous relationship development is really critical. Mm-hmm. Um and there's great ways to be able to stay in touch with people as you connect with people and you meet with them, like absolutely throw everybody down into a newsletter list and keep them on your quarterly updates. I mean, that shows progress also gives you an indication of who's paying attention and who's really interested in your business. 
Um, and then when you do see them, maybe at a conference several months from the last time you talked to them, mm-hmm. you know, they've they followed along with your updates and there's something to kind of connect over and connect to. Um, the other thing with fundraising, I think, just to take a step back is, is to think about the kind of business that you want to build because fundraising is not a measurement of success. It's it's an important step in growing a business if you want to create a venture scale large company. But I think we're living in a reality now where like we're not all making hundred million dollar companies. You know, it's really cool to me to create a lifestyle business that can sustain you, your family, and a couple employees where you're making you know great wage. You're able to save, buy a house, whatever the, your goals might be. And sometimes that's a lot more fulfilling and a lot more manageable with work-life balance than creating something that's going to be the next Slack or the next Facebook or, you know, the next RX bar in consumer, um, you know, we're one in a thousand or one in a hundred companies actually make it to that level of success, depending on the category. And um, it can be a really hard journey to get there. So I think if you just kind of take stock of what you're actually looking to build before you think about fundraising and also recognizing that every business is an experiment. You know, we don't know if anything's going to work. I've been building Scout now for over five years. It's working, but I don't know what it's going to happen in five years. I mean, I would still call it a big experiment. Like, can we have a responsible brand in seafood that does everything well and above board? Mm -hmm. Um, We're still trying to figure it all out. So, you know, if you approach entrepreneurship with the frame of experimentation and that it's an idea and it's not going to necessarily land on your first idea or your first business, Mm -hmm. it does take some of the pressure off. Um, and, and I think you can make better decisions that way when you're not hyper fixated on this being the only thing. And it's my whole life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think partly this question was for myself as well. Yeah. <laughs> Advice on that, but I would, re- I really appreciate uh, the honesty here, Adam, right? Uh, you mentioned that it's not just about, you know, the tactics and other strategy. It's, it's more of a connection, right? You need totally. to be authentic with people. It's not a quick sell. Uh, it's, it's going to require that relationship, right? Which will build over time. So I really appreciate uh, you sharing that advice. Yeah, like who knows us meeting today, right? If I, or you want to launch something in the States or I want something in India, now we know each other. Absolutely. But uh, the packaging is, is super cool. Uh, it, it catches your attention, right? Uh, so we'd love to know more about the packaging as well. And is this the first variation or how has that evolved over the years? For sure. I mean, when you look at the average product in our category, it's usually just a wrapped can. Mm-hmm. So when it's on shelf and you have you know, a dozen commodity brands to choose from, everything looks kind of homogenous and very similar. So when we developed the brand identity for Scout, it built on what my co-founder, Chef Charlotte, had created as a side project back in 2014, which was really kind of like historical vintage style packaging. So we used a little bit of that board from a little bit of the original uh, kind of concept around Scout and then converted that into um, the packaging that you see today with the really kind of iconic scout name as as the primary logo on it and then illustrative uh, versions of each species that are in the can with color blocking that made it really pop off shelf Mm -hmm. so we tend to be more colorful and stand out on shelf in a sea of, of of labeled cans and to your point that's what inspires people to kind of pick it up and look at what it is and then once they see the box then there's more storytelling involved. You know, there's there's a sourcing map on it that shows you where the seafood's from. There's our different certifications on it. When you open the box, it looks almost like a gift inside and there's other 
kind of call outs around recipes and sourcing standards. So it, it helps reinforce the story of Scout and it differentiates us on shelf. And it's mm -hmm. one of the reasons people buy us, I think, for the first time. Mm -hmm. And then the product tastes really good. So that's why they keep on coming back. Absolutely. But in terms of marketing, right, uh, Adam, so how did we went about building that initial awareness about the brand? Did we launch any Facebook ads, Google ads? or what was the initial awareness channel for us? So Charlotte had been working on this as the side project on top of her chef career. And <laughs> I mean, her and I have been friends for, for several years at that point. And I watched her as a chef create this product line that was sold at a couple of farmers markets and some independent retailers at the time it was refrigerated for one week mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't shelf stable or really commercially available um, it was small scale kind of made in her kitchen and that that also existed for almost three years as a side project before we took the brand to the next level mm -hmm. and that initial kind of consumer base that was created in those first few years, along with the awareness that Charlotte had as a chef, mm -hmm. helped us get the kind of, you know, initial products into the market and that initial buzz and delighting that initial consumer base that was really happy to see the brand kind of transition from something that was very artisan and small scale to something that was commercially available in some of the larger grocery stores. Mm -hmm. So that was that initial buzz. And then we, we, we recognized that there was uh, a bit of a, a movement happening with different cocktail bars, wine bars, hospitality industry, bringing in European uh, conservas where mm -hmm. tin fish from Europe is way more uh, robust, like higher quality, different species, beautiful packaging. It's kind of like charcuterie, wine and cheese okay. than commodity tuna that the U.S. market has mm -hmm. traditionally. So we were able to kind of leverage that that trend that was happening in the hospitality industry and started to work initially with different restaurants and, mm -hmm. and, and kind of chefs that had us on their menus and that helped build a little bit of the brand initially. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit um, right away after within a few months of launching, we, mm -hmm. we got slammed with the pandemic. And then we got really popular online where people okay. were looking at, you know, cooking at home again and uh, tinned fish because you can just open and eat it. And it's a ready to eat protein. That's super clean. Mm -hmm. It was like the perfect pandemic uh, food item for people that wanted to, you know, have access to really great proteins affordably that were high quality, a little bit fancy in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that initial, that initial like pandemic shift for us actually drove a lot of online sales. Mm -hmm. So we did focus on D to C at the beginning and that helped grow our customer base. And, and then we kind of, you know, through storytelling on our social channels, started to share more about our mission around sourcing, climate action, different issues that were important to us. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of set the flywheel off for, for the brand as mm -hmm. we got into more and more retailers as the pandemic rolled down. Mm -hmm. um, and today compared to how we marketed when we launched is very different. Now we okay. focus almost entirely on in-store marketing. Mm -hmm. So driving promotions, in-store signage, in-store demos, um, real like trade marketing opportunities, off shelves, end caps, mm -hmm. brand collaborations in store. Cause that's where a lot of consumers now find scout. So digital marketing in terms of like social ads and email marketing, it's still uh, a part of our our kind of brand awareness engine, but it's actually the much, much smaller piece of it. We okay. focus most of our resources today now, three years post-launch post mm -hmm. um, at a store level where people are going to be seeing us on shelf for the first time mm -hmm. and how can we motivate that first purchase? Interesting. I think a lot of brands are trying to uh, increase retail velocity through digital advertising, right? Uh, it's mm -hmm. not that they're focused on D2C uh, as the channel. 
but uh, a lot of brands are creating awareness campaigns right uh, to drive more growth on retail stores yeah and one one new thing that we're trying we have a campaign happening right now mm-hmm. with a company called Sampler okay and we just launched into 350 Sprouts locations with one of our new product lines the snacks um and we're working with Sampler to basically fund the entire in-store purchase of one of our products so mm-hmm. the the team at sampler kind of dips into their community of people who want to try new products mm-hmm. and they can opt in to getting uh, an in-store coupon and they they go into the store and they you know they ring it up at the till and scout pays for it entirely so that's a way for us to drive in-store sales mm-hmm. and to measure the success of that campaign with customers who are excited to go and try our products mm-hmm. rather than giving them a discount or try to convert encourage them to order a D2C mm-hmm. that benefits us but doesn't benefit necessarily the retailer so this is a way for us to drive velocities to drive value to the retailer where mm-hmm. we kind of fund the campaign and then the hope is that again those customers will continue to purchase it because they love the taste of the product and that's a very creative way paying for in-store purchases but yeah. i think when you think about the cost of acquiring a customer online mm-hmm. and trying to get them to buy it to see and then to keep them yeah it, it's expensive for sure yep uh but adam over the years you might have gone through a lot of challenges right in your journey uh, if i were to ask you the most challenging part of building uh, the business so far what would that be i think taking a step back and thinking about both scout and then the last you know two companies in particular it's always kind of come down to the co-founder vision um and and where to take the company and companies are very rarely built by individuals right they're they're co-founders there's teams um it takes a village to build a successful company and it's an it's you're an outlier if you're a a a single entrepreneur or somebody who's built a company to scale on your own and with that comes really integrated relationships with your co-founders and they can be really challenging to navigate just like any type of romantic relationship or a family relationship there they're very closely connected there's a lot of financial dependence you're basically you know depending on each other uh for your success mm-hmm. and stock be that can be a really big challenge so um before scout with the last two companies i uh you know started to have differences in vision in what i wanted to be doing or where i thought the company should be heading with with my partners mm-hmm. and um they became really toxic relationships and relationships that were very distrustful um and that energy starts to spill over to the team you know that can observe it so those were always the hardest things for for me to navigate but they also taught me the most about how i've wanted to work with my co-founders at scout Mm-hmm. um cuz you know they're not the same co-founders that I had in my last two companies mm-hmm. um and you learn a lot about how you want to be treated and how you want to be able to treat others and i think typically you learn a lot more from your failures or challenges than you do from your wins and successes so the biggest challenge is like you know making sure that you're getting into business with somebody that you can trust long term that's going to be able to pick up the pieces where you fall short that has complementary skills and one where you can align on vision where you know 3 or 4 years down the line when mm-hmm. money growth is all in play that the ego doesn't take over um and and that can be hard because you don't know at the beginning how things are going to turn out but you know your judgment of character and your intuition and maybe even developing a framework with each other with kind of rules of engagement very very early on can avoid a lot of conflict later on Yeah, but those those toxic co-founder relationships were the hardest on my mental health and and well-being. 
But so, I appreciate you sharing that, Adam. Not a lot of founders are willing to talk about that, right? So I really appreciate uh, you sharing those. Uh, but with that, it was honor to have you on the podcast. Uh, what a fantastic story you had, right? So uh, it was it was honor to have you on. Thank you, Sumit. It was also an honor to be here. I'm glad they were able to chat. Thanks, thanks for even being interested in, in the story. I, I had a fun time chatting with you today.